Well, it's Advent. I loved, I mean, thanks for, for leading us in that this morning. That was precious. So good. And we're starting an Advent series today to walk us through the, the weeks leading up to Christmas. This morning, we're going to be looking at a significant player in the Advent story, biblically speaking. Um, this character is talked about in every one of the gospel stories, and it's John the Baptist, one of my favorite Bible characters. So if you have your Bibles, uh, and our ushers have Bibles ready for you, if you'd like a Bible, uh, feel free to grab one from them. We're turning to Matthew chapter 3, uh, verses 1 through 12. You might have a device, you can look at it on your device. This is going to be one, the, the words won't be up on the screen for the reading, and it'll be one that'll be helpful for you to have kind of in front of you. So if you have a Bible, you can turn there. Matthew chapter 3, verses 1 through 12. In those days, John the Baptist came to the Judean wilderness and began preaching. His message was, repent of your sins, turn to God, for the kingdom of heaven is near. The prophet Isaiah was speaking about John when he said, he is a voice shouting in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord's coming. Clear the road for him. John's clothes were woven from coarse camel hair, and he wore a leather belt around his waist. For food, he ate locusts and wild honey. People from Jerusalem and from all of Judea and all over the Jordan Valley went out to see and hear John, and when they confessed their sins, he baptized them in the Jordan River. But when he saw many Pharisees and Sadducees coming to watch him baptize, he denounced them. You brood of snakes, he exclaimed. Who warned you to flee God's coming wrath? Prove by the way you live that you've repented of your sins and turned to God. Don't, don't just say to each other, we're safe, for we are descendants of Abraham. That means nothing, for I tell you, God can create children of Abraham from these very stones. Even now the axe of God's judgment is poised, ready to sever the roots of the trees. Yes, every tree that does not produce good fruit will be chopped down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water, those who repent of their sins and turn to God, but someone is coming soon who is greater than I am, so much greater that I'm not even worthy to be his slave and carry his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. He is ready to separate the chaff from the wheat with his winnowing fork. Then he will clean up the threshing area, gathering the wheat into his barn, but burning the chaff with never-ending fire." Lord God, thank you for John the Baptist and his words, your word, that speak to us today, and would they speak to us today? We open up our ears, and we say, come, lead us by your spirit. In Christ's name, we pray, amen. Well, it's that time of year, isn't it? <laughs> Where our culture just amps up, and it's everything holidays, everything Christmas, all the time, uh, the question that we often ask each other these, th at this point in time is, are you ready? So let me ask you, are you ready? I mean, did you do some of your, your holiday shopping this weekend? Uh, funny, I just typed in, in the, my Google search engine this week uh, the, the, the line, getting ready for Christmas, and I got all kinds of responses. I mean, there's a plethora of resources online about how you, you celebrate Christmas. I mean, for everything from organizing your holidays to, um, you know, preparing your Christmas dinner with Gordon Ramsay, you know, with or without swear words, I wonder. And, uh, and then the one that is my least favorite, how to prepare for Christmas in the gym. 
Thank you. No, thank you. Uh, Part of uh, our whole household's getting ready for Christmas is getting ready for guests. Most of our family live far away, and so uh, we often have someone, it seems like it, someone's always coming. And, and I don't know if it's like this in your home, but, but we do blitz cleaning when we have guests coming, right? Yeah, and we keep kind of our, our basic house, you know, our living room and our, our kitchen is ready for drop-in guests anytime. But if you were to open our garage door or... And I don't know what it is, folks, I gotta tell you something that's really funny, and don't you dare go home and, and Google our address, but Google, whenever they've taken pictures, street view of homes, every home we've ever lived in, it's been with our garage door wide open. You know, like, like all our junk for the world to see. You do Google Maps, so no, don't do it, please don't. It's just, but company is coming, and so Angel and I, and if our boys are with us, it's a whole family affair. We go on a tear, and, and we tidy, and we organize, and we clean, and at the end of it all, we kind of look at each other. We're in, standing in this foreign house that is tidy and clean, and we're like, we should have company more often. Actually, we never actually say that, do we? We never do say that, you know? It's not part of the deal. But, but there's a principle we probably all are aware of when it comes to guests, not all house guests are created equal, are they? Some, some people's visits require much more preparation. And I would say we tend to prepare differently depending on who's coming and why. It may be that your, your best friend says they're, they're dropping in for coffee and that's no sweat. But if it's your girlfriend's parents and this is their first time in your home, it's like inspection time and you, you gotta get it right. And so preparing for someone's visit depending, depends on who that someone is, who that person is to you, and just why it is that they're visiting. In our text from Matthew's gospel, John the Baptist told the people of his day, and he tells us too, that, that someone is coming. And he tells us just who, the, who is coming, why he's coming, and why we ought to get ready. How do we get, get ready? Verse 1 begins, in those days, John the Baptist came to the Judean wilderness and began preaching. In those days, it starts. In the paragraph of four in Matthew chapter two, we read about different days. We go back a few years, the days when the baby named Jesus was born and Magi traveled from the east announcing, where is the king of the Jews? And Herod's reaction to that was to kill all the two-year-olds in the area of Bethlehem in that region. Uh, we hear that Jesus' family were warned in a dream, and they fled the country only to return after Herod's death. And then it kind of fast-forwards the story about 30 years to these days, to those days where Jesus had been living in Nazareth, and you got John preaching in the Judean wilderness. Now, John was uh, family. He was actually a cousin, first cousin to Jesus. Wouldn't it be cool to be Jesus' first cousin? And from reading John's story in Luke, we know that his parents were Elizabeth and Zachariah. John was a PK, like me, a priest's kid, which when I was growing up, that just meant you were probably more trouble than other kids. That was kind of the deal, right? If you were a cop's kid or a pastor's kid, you got into more trouble. That was the rule, I think. But, but John, he, he, he's this priest's son, but he doesn't follow in his father's footsteps, which was common in that day to do that. Instead, he'd become an old-time prophet. And, and so we're told that he operated 
in the Judean wilderness, which I've been to. It's a fairly stark and, and kind of wild place. And, and the picture of John in the wilderness is, is he's an outdoorsman. He's, he's kind of geared up in the mountain equipment co-op clothing of the day, which was like coarse camel hair, which doesn't sound comfortable to me, right? Uh, and, and it's big, wide leather belt. It, it, it was the, the gear of actually a prophet. Did you know another person in Scripture that was dressed like that? Elijah. The Old Testament prophet Elijah was dressed like that. Uh, we're told John ate a diet, an unusual diet of locusts and wild honey. Basically, he was living simply. This is stuff, he didn't have a grocery store nearby, and so the picture is John foraging off the land. Wild hunting was something you could find there in that region. Uh, locusts were readily available. And apparently, in, in the Middle East, people still eat locusts to this day. Um, I uh, have never eaten locusts, but uh, about four or five years ago, I ate live crickets. In fact, some of you made me eat live crickets. Uh, this was as a fundraiser for, for a project, a water project in Kenya. And some of you paid a lot of money to see me eat live crickets. Very cruelly. I, in fact, I think some of you offered to pay not to see me eat live crickets. And I'm not sure if that was compassion towards me or the crickets. I'm not absolutely sure on that. But I, I made a list of those people who contributed to that whole thing. I'm checking it twice. Naughty, nice, all that jazz. But I kind of figure, John the Baptist has nothing on me. I'm, I'm figuring he probably ate battered locusts and chips, and I just ate live crickets. So there you go. Anyway, I move on. Whole point. John was not a priest like his father. He, he wasn't a pastoral type who you'd want by your bedside if, if you were really sick. He, John was a prophet, and he did what prophets do. They preached. And he wasn't the creator of kind of the feel-good sermon. He, he didn't hold babies. He didn't offer pastoral advice. He, he didn't sing songs or write poetry. John proclaimed. Now, proclaiming has a, a, a long history. In, in ancient days, when a king wanted to, to say something to his people, when he wanted to make a declaration to his country, they would send out a herald. You know that the carol, right? Hark the herald angels sing. By the way, that's not about an angel named Harold. It's a herald, a, a messenger, right? And when heralds proclaimed, they did three things. They spoke with the authority of the king. They tell the, 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 the people what the king said the situation was, and then what the king said that they needed to do in response. Wars are being fought on our borders, so we're conscripting your sons to fight in said wars. Or... or <laughs> Our, our royal treasury is empty or in overdraft, and so I'm drafting some of your funds. I mean, taxing, taxes are going up. This still goes on to this day. Surprise, surprise. And so John proclaims like a, a king's herald. He, he speaks with the king's authority, and he says, the kingdom of heaven has come near, so repent. John says, God's kingdom is on its way. God's rule is approaching. Get ready for it. The kingdom of God is coming. Get ready. Prepare. Verse 11 and 12 make it clear that God is coming in person, and he has serious business to take up with us. I baptize you with water for repentance, John begins, but 
but someone is coming soon who is greater than I am, so much greater that I'm not even worthy to, to carry his sandals. <laughs> he, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire, and he's ready to separate the chaff from the wheat with his winnowing fork. Then he will clean up the threshing area, gathering the wheat into his barn, but burning the chaff with never-ending fire. This is, this is really strong language here. God, God is coming to, to make earth as it is in heaven. And he'll do so by immersing or, or plunging the earth into the pure and into the holy, baptizing it in, in fire and spirit. And, and then like a farmer in the harvest, picture it, he, he'll heave us into the air with, with his winnowing fork to see who has the, the substance to drop back down to earth and who in, instead is so weightless that just the wind blows them away. John's message is, God is coming, get ready. And John tells the people what to do. His his message is simple, turn. It's that word, repent. Repent means to alter one's course, to to change one's mind, to to redirect one's life from the heart on out, to to straighten up. It, it It means more than to feel sorry, although it includes that. It means more than to apologize, although it includes that. It means prepare for drastic change, position yourself for reorientation, and then turn. Uh, Anybody remember, some of you are too young for this, comedian Bob Newhart? I grew up listening to his comedy sketches. Uh, Bob Newhart tells a story of a very patient driving instructor. We we catch the the instructor kind of mid-lesson with a very serious and literalistic student. Now, Mr. Smith, please turn left. There's a long pause. Well, now that's my fault, Mr. Smith. I should have said, please turn left at the next street. Let's see if we can back off of this garden. (laughs) You see, turning isn't enough. (laughs) Correct, only correct turning will do. And John says, turn, repent. Now, he's called John the what? The Baptist. Uh, It's not because, you know, he was always serving casseroles at potlucks. That was not why he was called John the Baptist. The word baptism comes from an ordinary Greek word that simply means to dip or to plunge, as in water. When when you fill your your sinks, your sink with the dishes to, to clean them, you're baptizing those cups and those plates and those cutlery. You're scrubbing them clean and setting them on the rack to dry. That's, that's one kind of core image of baptism that we have. Interesting, the word also has some violent associations. It was used to describe ships that were shipwrecked, that, that you know, caught in a storm and, and plunged into the depths of the sea to be lost forever. It, it was a word used by the Jewish historian Josephus to describe actually a, a movement of refugees fleeing the plains of Israel that that were flooded, and they fled to Jerusalem. He describes that whole refugee movement. And so it's a word, this this word baptism has kind of a a violent connotation to it. Baptism signifies death to a whole way of life. And Paul, that was his point in Romans 6, 3, he says, or don't you know that all of us who are baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Well, John provided baptism as an outside ritual 
to describe kind of a, an inner, people's inward desire to repent or their decision to repent. They could stand with him in the Jordan River. By the way, the Jordan is not this beautiful brook that's just calm and peaceful. I, I've been there, and in, in, in this section of the river, it's fast and racing, and you need to be holding on to something. I, I, I see John planted in the river and grabbing hold of these individuals who came forward, and he plunged them down into the waters, and, and it was like down with the old and up with the new. Repent, turn, straighten out. Now, it's always been fascinating to me that baptism has actually been around a long time before John, before John the Baptist. Baptism is what, in the Old Testament, what foreigners had to do. In fact, they still do it to this day. If you wanted to join Judaism, become part of the Jewish faith, you'd get baptized. And so here, John, by, by insisting on, on baptism, John was saying something actually quite audacious to the people who were coming to him who were Jews. He's saying it's not enough for you to depend on your Jewishness. You, you can't lean into your, your heritage, the family you were born into. You, you can't count on that to escape the judgment that is coming. You have to repent. You have to, to change. You have to be initiated into a new pattern of life fit for the kingdom of heaven. Now, I just want to think about the kingdom of heaven for a minute. I, I grew up in a church. I, I grew up going to church. My, my dad was a pastor, so I was there all the time. And it was well into my 20s before I heard a teacher or preacher talk about the kingdom of God. They didn't teach about the kingdom of God. I mean, everyone went to Bible school in England. They didn't talk about the kingdom of God. It's really strange. This thing that John came proclaiming, and, he, and even more so, that Jesus came teaching. I, I remember in one of my very first seminary classes out at Regent College, my professor speaking to a very green group of students. This was kind of an introductory class, and him throwing out the question to us as a class, what did Jesus talk about more than any other topic? And I remember somebody reached up their hand and says, love. Of course. I mean, Jesus talked a lot about love. I mean, he said it was the greatest commandment, right? Love God and love your neighbor as yourself. Uh, one of the final things he said around the the Lord's table with his disciples, his closest friends, he says, you know, love one another. Love each other as I have loved you, he said. So love is a big thing, but it wasn't it. Somebody said forgiveness. And of course, I mean, Jesus talked about forgiveness. As you have been forgiven freely, give, forgive. Uh, think of Peter coming to Jesus and saying, you know, seven times, Jesus, or is that how, long, how many times we're to forgive those who repent to us. And, and, and Jesus says 70 times seven, which is basically a, a way of saying infinite number of times. Forgive consistently. And that wasn't it. Uh, someone else shouted out money. And, and it's true. Jesus talked about money a lot. And some, some scholars su suggest that Jesus talked about money and its place in our life. Something like 25% of his teaching had to do with, with money. But that wasn't it. And our professor went on to talk to us about how Jesus spoke about the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven, which are kind of synonymous, more than any other topic. He talked about that most. It was the, the content of his teaching and his preaching, his parables, his storytelling. And it was clear that this kingdom that had come near was just like no other kingdom. 
Uh, It's been described as being an upside-down kingdom marked by by peacemaking and loving one's enemies and and radical generosity and and just crazy, generous hospitality and, and deep humility and caring for the least of these. One of my professors said, John Stackhouse, he describes this kingdom of heaven. He was commenting on Isaiah chapter 11, which I highly commend to you. Isaiah 11 is a great read, especially in Advent. Um, He he writes uh, about the the lamb and the lion lying down together, the, the predator and the prey being together. This is what he writes. He says, this is a kingdom in which God vindicates the poor and destroys the wicked. It's a kingdom in which oppressors and oppressed have left off those roles and they've been brought together in harmony. This is a kingdom in which predators and and prey have left off those roles and been brought together just as animals, enjoying each other's company, perfectly safe to each other, and even to little children. It says that. It's a beautiful picture of the kingdom. Stackhouse goes on, though. He continues, if one is still a predator, one has no place here. If one still abuses one's power over someone else, if one is a bullying parent, or a punishing supervisor, or a self-centered coach, or a manipulative lover, one has no place in this kingdom of peace. One will change or be destroyed. John the Baptist said that even full-time religious leaders like the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they couldn't fall back on their status as descendants of Abraham because status means nothing in the new kingdom. Really, John, who who doesn't exactly soft pedal for anyone here, he's especially hard on these religious leaders, the the ones whom everyone would expect who would have the least need to repent. I mean, he said this in verse 7, he says, but when he saw many Pharisees and Sadducees coming for baptism, he said to them, you brood of vipers, who wanted you to flee from the wrath to come? Sons of snakes, he calls them. He, He says, because all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All. And this glory, it's now near. His glory is on the way. His his glory is coming. And so what are we to do? John says, repent. Turn. Don't don't just feel badly. Verse 8, he says, bear fruit worthy of repentance. Or in another version, he says, prove your repentance by the way you live. Start with apologies to God and, and to all whom you've, you've wronged. That's a, a fruit of repentance, acknowledging your sins to yourself and, and to God and, and to those affected by them. I mean, Ben, ben talked about this last week, about this, this act of confession. Such a powerful, powerful practice. When we confess our sins to one another, Ben, ben reminded us, we are healed. Isn't that good? That'll preach. It preached well. Thanks, Ben. Confession. Confession is is, is owning up. It's actually being open about where you're at and what you've done. It's about being honest. You get honest about where you've messed up. But it doesn't stop there. Repentance is also you turn, which means you go on to new habits and and new patterns. Again, verse 3, quoting Isaiah, prepare the way for the Lord's coming. Clear the road for him. Interesting, in those days, uh, the Roman Empire were fastidious about their roads. They loved their roads. They were all about the roads. It was a way of conquering lands 
It was also a way of keeping them, you know, administering them. And so they, they, they obsessed about having good roads. And if a local region knew that a sovereign was coming, a representative of Rome was coming to their, their, their community, they would do all in their power to make sure the roads were repaired and smooth for the coming of the king. When, when John says, clear the road, he's essentially saying, make it easier for God to come to you to help you. Rather than throwing up obstacles and making his path crooked, don't hinder him. Make a straight road for God to come to you, to, to come to your heart, to come into your life. Some of you know my honeymoon story. Um, we got married on, on this beautiful Saturday, which was a big deal because uh, in Ontario, where we got married, in Toronto, that whole summer, every Saturday, every weekend, poured rain, except for one Saturday, and that was our wedding day, which we felt really grateful for. I don't think I've ever actually been sad about all the other couples who got married that summer in the rain. We married on a sunny day. Selfish guy that I am. But uh, we got married in the morning, and we had an early kind of afternoon reception, and so we were finished with sort of wedding festivities at about five or six in the afternoon, so we hit the road. And we were going north uh, to cottage country where my uncle had given us a cottage to stay in for our honeymoon. And as it turns out, I made a wrong turn in Magneto 1. Anybody ever heard of Magneto 1? No one in the first service. Oh, there we go. Yeah, one Ontario girl. Um, <laughs> Magneto 1 is, for a small village, it seems to have a lot of roads going out of it, or into it, I guess you could call it. And it wasn't very long where I started feeling very uncomfortable because I'd been to my uncle's cottage before many times, and I never remembered driving through a one-lane logging road to get there. And it just felt like we were driving further into the wild, right, into the wilderness. And, and so eventually, I, it was kind of like uh, uh, Gandalf in the, the Mines of Moria. I have no memory of this place. That was how I felt in that car. <laughs> well, eventually, and I, I'd rather not go into specific times here, because uh, this was a very humbling experience for this newly married husband, but eventually I needed to pull over and apologize to my wife and turn around. You see, it doesn't just work to, when I've chosen the wrong road and driven down it for hours to realize I've made a serious error and then tell my passengers, oops, I'm sorry, I made a mistake, and then just carry on down the same road, you know? <laughs> Even if you were to solemnly deepen your tone, and sincerely say, I'm really, really sorry, and you still, you still keep going. It means nothing if I don't change direction. All that really counts in that moment is, is for me to turn, to go the right way, even if it means stopping dead, turning around, and going back, and then I got to choose properly. I, I got to get on the right road and move on down it. I mean, think about hospitality. You know, when it comes to, to greeting into your home a distinguished guest, it's, it's just no good to greet them with casual excuses or light apologies about the state of your place, the mess. You know, how welcome can a guest feel if they had to slog through an unshoveled, snowy walkway to, to your home and, and maybe pick their way up an icy stairway? and knocking on a dark door, and then they stumble through a hallway that's strewn with junk and obstacles, only to find that in your living room there's, there's no actual seats to sit on. We've got to ask ourselves, 
What prevents God from walking straight into my life? What keeps me from from welcoming him into my home? What what needs to be cleaned out? What needs to be put away or thrown into the trash or or fixed up before he visits? No no wishful thinking will will do. I I, got to start now, today. I got to prepare the way for the Lord. These, These are hard questions that we, I think, need to ask as individuals and and as families and and as a church. In what respects do we interfere with God's coming to us? What would Jesus have to to push aside or cut away or to straighten out or to burn up in in order to deal with us properly? What what are we hanging on to with white-knuckled fists? Or, or maybe what are we enthusiastically building that hinders his way? I, I was struck uh, in my own life this week by a familiar verse that I know very, very well. It's Hebrews 12, where it talks about being surrounded. Because we're surrounded by a great cloud of faithful followers who've gone before and shown us the way, he says, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. The picture is, is kind of twofold. It, it gives you two images. It's somebody running a race, but if you can imagine that they're kind of weighed down, like, like they're wearing, can you imagine running? I, I, I know from doing the Camino last year, the pilgrimage, wearing a backpack on your back for hours at a time, it was a, an encumbrance to me. I, I couldn't go fast. And, and I wonder, some of us maybe are encumbered by good things in our lives, things that are just sucking time. I'll probably talk more about this in the new year, but Angel and I, for the month of November, we actually went on a TV fast because we thought that our life was, getting, was crowding out time for God and time for each other. And, and we reflected on that yesterday and today, by the way, December 1st, we can start watching television. I can't wait to get home from church. <laughs> Football, hun, no? That was a firm shake, No. Um, actually, we were commenting yesterday at how rich it's been for our marriage and for our sense of connectedness to our, our world and community, simply saying no to an activity that was an encumbrance to us. It wasn't a bad thing. It was just too much of a good thing. And then there's outright sin, the sin that so easily entangles. And the picture here is, is maybe not a backpack of, of just... I wondered, it's, it's more like it gets just snared and entangled. Can you imagine if, if I tied your legs with a cord or your legs were shackled and you're trying to run your race and, and you really can only stumble along? What does that passage say to do with those things? Throw them off. Throw them off. It's another way. The Bible just says the same thing many different ways. It's kind of like repent. <laughs> Throw it off. The 10th verse tells us that, to take this seriously because God is the farmer who, who's coming to harvest. And it says, even now the ax is lying at the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that doesn't bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. The image here is, is of, a, of a farmer, a wise farmer who, who's looking for the trees that are bearing good fruit and pruning away those trees that don't. They have to go. They're, they're barren. They're taking up space for no good reason. They're, they're sucking valuable int- nutrients up from the ground and blocking sunshine from other plants. 
without producing anything good for anyone. Those trees have got to go. I mean, why would you keep them? It's, it's only the appropriate thing to do. Now, we might be thinking that, that perhaps John the Baptist is too wild or too simplistic. Surely things aren't that drastic. I mean, surely the world isn't divided up into two groups of people, those who repent and, and those, those who don't. Surely God is love, which we know means tolerant and even indulgent and, and certainly not judgmental. And we know that we're not that bad, whatever that means. So everything will just be fine. But folks, let's not let our culture's sentimental version of Christmas confuse us. Let's not underestimate that tiny little baby in the manger, helpless in the manger, who's so cute and cuddly. Jesus coming means this. God is no longer far away. He's close. He's no no longer far away, comfortably distant. God is here now, and his kingdom comes, and his will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. King Herod understood something of this truth. I mean, he recognized the threat that Jesus posed to his power and his authority, his his lifestyle, and he he rose to stamp it out ruthlessly. I mean, John John the Baptist also understood something of the truth. He, He recognized the threat that Jesus posed to his people to their complacency, to to their self-righteousness, and he knew that the threat was near. He was coming. John was certain about one fact. The fact is this. God, by his very holy nature, will always stand in opposition to sin. He'll always stand opposed to sin. Can Can I remind you? In this season where we can think all is dark, I want to remind you, God is love. And because God is love, loving beyond our definition of love, the, the deepest, richest love you can imagine and beyond, we can't measure it. That's how loving God is. This God who loves us will not idly stand by and watch us as sin and our brokenness distorts us and thwarts us and, and, and left unchecked will eventually destroy us. He won't let it be. He'll get in the way. He'll oppose it. One scholar put it this way, we're not to think that God is mildly displeased when people sin. He is totally and vigorously opposed to evil. You see the glow, that, that light shining from the manger? It's the light of the world. He's coming. That's what Advent is all about. He, he came and, and he's coming again. But this light is not the, the twinkling of, of bulbs on a tree. It, it's not the glow of a, a Christmas special. It's, it's, it's not even flickering candles in a church candlelight service. This is the light of the world, the light of God's judgment, the fire of his purity, the, the brightness of his presence. In our passage today we're, we're told that the people responded. They, they came in droves. And it says they confessed their sins and they repented and they got baptized as a sign of their repentance. They did what they could do to get ready for the coming of the king. And, and it's cool. You, you know, the, the first followers of Jesus were followers of John. Some of those people that got baptized by John were the very first people when Jesus came onto the scene said, we're going with him. 
See you, John. Jesus is the guy who's better, stronger, richer. I suspect even some of those religious types, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, uh, you know, repented of their self-righteousness and their spiritual pride, and they turned. They too prepared for the coming of the king, who, as we're told in Matthew 121, would come saving people from their sins. Folks, we know this. We know that though God's God's opposition to sin, while vigorous and great, does not cancel out his love and mercy and his grace. And so he laid down his life. He bore the cost of our sin, of humankind's sin on the cross so that we wouldn't have to. And it makes me ask this question. Who wouldn't want to clear the way for that kind of king? Who wouldn't want to make it easier for that king to come to us, a king who comes to save us from our sins? I'd like us to pray. So if you can bow your head and, and, and have a few minutes of reflection. I wanted to ask you right now, is there anything in your life that needs to be repented of? It may sting, but are you willing? And just feel like the Holy Spirit maybe has already put his finger on something, but let's take a moment, and, and Holy Spirit, we invite you to speak to us right now as a congregation. Is there, what is it you'd have us repent? And then I'll, I'll give you some suggestions in a minute. Maybe for some, uh, it, it has to do with your finances. Maybe you, you've been involved in, in financial practices and you know they're wrong. You know something needs to, to, to be set right. Maybe it's about truth-telling. Some of you are sitting here and you're living in deceit in, in some way in your life and, and you know you, you are and you haven't done anything about it because you're not able to or, or willing to face the pain. I'm encouraging you today to face the pain. Maybe this involves uh, problems in the area of sexuality. Or maybe there's cynicism in your spirit and you've just been letting it go kind of unchecked in your life. Maybe you've kind of grown a, a judgmental heart. Or perhaps for you there's a deeper issue to be repented of. Maybe you've been living as if God is kind of playing like an extra in your life. Yeah, he's not center stage. You're at the center. And uh, it's a lordship issue. And you need to repent of having you being on the throne of your, your heart and, and, and actually bowing to, to the king of kings. Or maybe truly you've been living as if he doesn't exist. You're kind of a functional atheist. You come to church, but, but actually when it comes down to it, you live as if he isn't actually real. Repenting for you means a fundamental life turnaround. Maybe for you, it's just, you've never done that first step of coming to Jesus openly and honestly, saying, Jesus, I give you my life. I've, I've screwed it up. I've messed it up. And I want to put my hope and trust in you. And, and today would be the kind of day where you could actually turn your, your heart and your life over to him. What, what is it that needs to get cleaned up? What do you need to confess to God or to another person to set it right? Now is the time. Repent open up your heart to him you know the last words of scripture in revelation has jesus saying i'm on my way i'll be there soon 
And so we say, come Lord Jesus. Amen. Remain standing for this benediction. Hillside Community Church, know this. The kingdom of heaven is near. The kingdom of God is at hand. This, this glorious kingdom of God has come close. And so may God give you his abundant grace and his sufficient courage to repent, to clear the way, making it easy for Jesus to come on into your life and do what he wants to do in you. Amen.